Hello. Welcome to another episode of the Christian Information Podcast. This is sure to be a real zinger. We'll see how it goes. Um, today, we are talking very passionately about apologetics in the various forms. I don't know if you knew this, but there's quite a few different ways that people view apologetics. And to shed some light on that, we've brought in our resident expert, Scott Olson. What's up, nerds? Yes. Who runs a podcast uh, <laughs> called? Um, what's your podcast you don't even called? know what it's called. <laughs> Free thinking podcast. There it is. Wow. I was going to say reasonable faith, but you're a part of reasonable faith, yes. which is um, an organization by William Lane Craig. Who's That's kind correct. Of your guy. He's, he's one of my guys. He's one of your guys. And Craig I don't has done exactly some, know what that means. Yeah, uh, we'll get into that later. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> I enjoy reading him. You enjoy reading him. He's great. I have a book by his that I just gave away. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Got rid of that. <laughs> but, okay, um, enough of that. Um, today, I want to start our conversation um, kind of on the, the back end of what we were talking about last week with C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity. Because in that book, he actually provides some um, apologetics, like explicit apologetics that he would call apologetics. And so, Andrew, real briefly, could you fill us in on what C.S. Lewis within Mere Christianity was doing in his apologetic? And for those of you that are just um, maybe joining us for this conversation, we, um, we talked about C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity last week. And in that book, he um, gives a case for like a pure Christianity or a mere Christianity, like the very basics of the Christian faith. Um, and there's some beautiful apologetics. And what we say, uh, or what we mean by apologetics, Scott, what do we mean by apologetics? Um, the defense of the Christian faith, whatever form that might take. First uh, Peter 3.15 says that, always be prepared to uh, have a defense for the hope that is in you. Um, there's a number of different ways people have interpreted that, but however you advocate um, making that defense. That's what we mean by apologetics. You've oh, said that before. I you have. that down quick. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that. And so Lewis in his book has a defense or a reason for his faith. And Andrew, can you give us just like um, a, an overview, a five-minute overview of like what that is, or three minutes? Yeah, I'll probably talk about five minutes. It's really long. Five minutes. It's going to be is, the rest uh, of the Yeah, so in Mere Christianity, Lewis, uh, he kind of tries to tackle a few different topics, but he begins with... Uh, what's been called the moral argument for the existence of God. So he even says in the beginning of his book that the first section is not so much to argue for the Christian God or for Christ or for the resurrection or anything like that, but he's just trying to make an argument that there is a God for theism as a whole. And so his moral argument is essentially, uh, I mean, fairly self-explanatory, that he says because there's a morality and right and wrong in the world, um, that we can basically get to a place where that has to come from a being or some sort of unified um, force or sense or something that he gets to as, as God. Um, the thing that's interesting about his argument that I uh, think I appreciate, and Scott, I think I've heard that maybe you disagree with the moral argument or don't think it's as helpful. Um, so let me, let me, I, let me say yeah, this, and then ahead. you give a, a yeah, defense sure, or a sure. thought on it. So uh, oftentimes I think when we say the moral argument – we think, okay, because murder is bad, then we can basically get to a place where we know there's a God. Well, a counter-argument to that is that not every person thinks that murdering is wrong, or there's different levels of uh, how wrong it is, or who you could murder, who you can't murder, things like that. To kill, in some cultures, maybe isn't as bad as in our culture. Mm. 
But what Lewis says is that it's not, he doesn't argue necessarily on specific acts, but he argues on that every culture has a set of right and wrongs. And so it may not be, you know, murder or slavery or um, slapping somebody. You know, you can argue the fine points of that, but he says every culture has a set of right and wrongs, has a set of morals. And if everyone at least has a sense of, of morality at all, that has to lead us to somebody giving that inside of us. And mm-hmm. so, um, so I think that's where some of the, the counter arguments come that he even addresses a little bit, uh, which I think is helpful to point out. Um, but yeah, Scott, give us some thoughts on, on the strengths of the moral yeah. argument, weaknesses of it. So I, I, my, I've gone back and forth on the moral argument over the years. I think I do, I do want to say, I think it's a good argument. I think it's a valid argument. I think it's a sound argument and it can work really, really well. Um, but I I don't usually trot it out when I'm giving out arguments because I don't feel as confident defending it as I do other arguments. So because uh, just for a number of uh, different reasons that we don't have to get into right here because some of them are fairly high level complicated stuff. But um, I I also think there are just better arguments to use um, in my own opinion. But some people there are plenty of smart people that think otherwise. Um, but what yeah, would I think counter argument be, or what is a, a really sure good counter argument um, to the moral argument? So an argument that I don't think is, I don't think it's a counter argument that I don't think is successful, but I think it is, it, I don't feel at, like terribly confident that I've, that I've refuted it well, is that, um, objective moral values and duties just exist as sorts of, uh, abstract properties that are outside of nature but they're not really grounded in anything so the the atheist could say no what uh when we talk about something being good or or evil it doesn't have to be grounded in anything it can just be the case that that act is good or evil like there doesn't need to be any further explanation for that now i don't i think there are some issues uh metaphysical issues with that i i'm not entirely sure what that means when the the atheist might say that but um in terms of like a a rebuttal i don't feel that confident in in making a rebuttal to, to their argument so what i like to do from there is transition to my favorite version of the moral argument which is an argument from moral knowledge which basically says okay Let's assume you're right in that moral values and duties don't have to be grounded in God, which is basically what the moral argument says. The moral would argument. that be then that we get morality just from like society or uh, not? Or there necess- is this like so, evil force. So let's I, I'll, I'll define a couple of terms real quick. So when we're talking about objective morality, we're saying that an act is good or evil regardless of any human opinion on that subject. So a common uh, example of this is if you know Hitler won and you know Nazism spread throughout all of the world, it still would be evil what he did to the Jewish people, right? Like him committing that genocide would still be evil, even if everyone in the world would have been brainwashed to think what he did was good. So that's an example of an objective moral uh, value or objective moral principle. A subjective moral principle would be. Um, society like some societies think this thing is good some societies think this thing is bad and there's no objective right or wrong answer about that now what the moral argument says is that um without 
God or without some being that exists outside of um, nature to be an objective standard by which to measure right and wrong, we those those concepts don't have any meaning. Um, they they they're just meaningless concepts that are that that couldn't be anything other than our own subjective human opinions. Now the version that I um, just talked about that maybe the atheist might say they would say okay. I want to affirm objective morality. I think most people do. Most people would want to say in that example with Hitler that what he did was wrong no matter what happened, right? So what they would say is that, yes, it's wrong, but it's it's wrong because because it's wrong, basically. like It just is the case that it's wrong. There doesn't need to be any further explanation as to why it's wrong. Um, so the property of being wrong somehow, you know, instantiates itself upon that act of and it, and if this sounds very confusing it's because I, i'm not entirely sure it does make any sense but this is a possible um escape hatch but what i would what i was getting at with this uh moral knowledge argument is that okay let's assume that's right and that these properties of rightness and wrongness just somehow instantiate themselves on these acts well how do we know that our moral intuitions are correct about these acts? There's no if if our knowledge of good and evil was produced by evolutionary processes, well, our knowledge would be geared towards survival, not towards truth, right? Because evolution uh, causes us to adapt for our own survival, not not to know the truth. And so, if our um, belief producing um, uh, no, if, if our knowledge um, is guided by evolution, then it would be whatever. We would only know things that would benefit our survival. Not, and if we happen to have true beliefs, it would just be a happy accident. And so because that's the case, we don't have any confidence that what we know to be good or wrong, good or evil, is actually good or evil. Um, so I don't know if that, <laughs> I don't know if I uh, made a lot of sense there, but that's basically the argument is that, um, Without God, because because if God exists, He's created our our brains or our belief producing faculties, as uh, some philosophers call them, mm-hmm. geared towards truth. Like He wants us to have true beliefs. Now we don't always have true beliefs because we're fallen and we don't we're not omniscient, but um, we're they're geared towards truth. So God would want us to know right and wrong. Um, and so that that so therefore we have a good reason to trust our. Um, our knowledge about moral acts, but without God, does, it seems to me we don't have a good reason to um, trust our beliefs about right and wrong. So even if it's true that you can't have right and wrong apart from God, we have no reason to think that our beliefs about what's right and wrong are true. So sure, maybe we think killing someone is wrong, but uh, why would we trust that belief? Because it was produced by an evolution evolutionary process that wasn't geared towards truth, it was geared towards survival. So... That's wow. my that's kind that's of my thoughts on the moral. <laughs> okay, argument. so Lewis argues to recap what I'm hearing you saying. Sure. So Lewis argues for a molar argument, a molar, a molar argument, <laughs> a moral argument. I'm watching the news too much. <clears throat> I know. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, but so taken to like the furthest extent, there's this sort of God-shaped hole that's missing that you sort of need to. Or a truth shape hole, I guess you should say that. Like we're made mm. to experience truth. Right. Is that fair to say? Um, Lewis says that, or you say that. Um, At the end of the moral argument, there's a truth shape hole. 
as like what we do with truth and why there's right and wrong? Um, I don't know if that would be how I would put it. I would probably say what the moral argument says. Um, if we were to put it out in a form of uh, premises and a conclusion, like a logical argument, premise one would be, if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. The second premise is that objective moral values and duties do exist. And so the third premise is, therefore, God exists. So if you affirm the first two premises, the third is the conclusion uh, logically follows. So the whole point is, the first premise basically says, if God does not exist, then there's you just can't have objective morality. But according to the second premise, we all think morality is objective, or a lot of people think morality is objective. Um, it's it's true regardless of one's opinion about it, and so therefore God exists, and that's what the moral argument is saying, and yes. that's more or less what I think and Lewis your is saying. Gripe though, my your gripe? gripe against it. Well, and again, I, I don't want to say I have a gripe <laughs> with it because I think it's a good and <laughs> sound. Like you got a gripe down on this. No, I I just said that I don't. The reason I don't use it is because I'm not as confident in it as I am in. Other arguments. Okay. So, like, I, I have a, no, okay. a number of other arguments that I would prefer to use because I feel more confident in in defending them. But that's just a personal choice. Like, my podcast co-host, Tim, he loves the moral argument. He's really good at defending it. Okay. And so, if he were to use it, I would I would probably agree with everything that he said. Um, but uh, he, he he's better at defending it than I am, whereas, like, I would probably be better at using um, a certain version of the cosmological arguments or the ontological argument because that's an area I've studied more um, than than he has. So, Nice. Yeah, so I, I wouldn't say I have a gripe. Okay. No gripes. No gripes. So we're all Lewis yeah. fans here. Oh, okay, yeah, I love Lewis. All right. I love Lewis, too. So let me ask a question. Oh, please ask a question. So in, in terms of Lewis, as we're, we're looking at him as an apologist, Zoom out a little bit. So in, in Mere Christianity, which we talked about last time, it, that, that's one of his primary arguments that mm-hmm. he uses at the beginning of the book for the existence of God. If somebody has not read much of Lewis, uh, what do you guys see as some of the, the strengths of Lewis as an apologist? So you have Mere Christianity, you have uh, Abolition of Man, you have Miracle, some of these uh, where it's a little bit more philosophical and he is making some of these apologetic arguments. Then you have the Chronicles of Narnia, you have the Ransom Trilogy, where he is using stories and allegories to basically to basically show a Christian worldview and to kind of expand our imagination in how we view God. And so he does both of these. So help us think through, what are some of the strengths, weaknesses um, of Lewis as an apologist? <laughs> well, I mean, I think... I mean, he, I don't know if Lewis would have viewed himself this way, but I think his strongest apologetic was maybe his, um, his story, you know? Um, I don't know. I think that there's just like, that's, yeah, in my personal opinion, I don't have any facts to back up, but like, I think that's probably the thing that, um, has maybe helped most people see like a Christian reality. Um, apart from his arguments, like that's, yeah, I think that is probably his greatest. Mm-hmm. Not even apart from his arguments, including his arguments, like his story is like the greatest apologetic he's maybe produced. But I'm open to being wrong. <laughs> One of the things I'll say quickly before Scott answers is the in I think it's his essay uh, called Christianity and Literature. He makes the argument that um, the world doesn't just need more 
uh, more explicit Christian defenses of the faith, hmm. but they need more really good literature hmm. that has implicit Christian values throughout. And so what's interesting is I read that is you have a man who is writing books like Mere Christianity and uh, The Abolition of Man and Miracle and these books that are very explicitly yeah. trying to make the case for Christianity. That's so interesting. Um, and so and I don't know that Lewis, if we should view him as one or the other, because I think it's helpful to see him as a brilliant man who could deal in with great words and philosophy and arguments, but also a brilliant just storyteller. And he had just an amazing imagination. But it was interesting that uh, in some sense he kind of rode that line by saying that Christians shouldn't only just focus on making explicit Christian arguments, but we should also just be telling really good stories and be engaging the imagination as well. And to that point, I think I'd add that it reaches a broader audience. So like some people like Scott are really passionate about like reason and logic and thinking through some of these arguments that are like in mere Christianity. Hmm. Uh, but these stories like Chronicles of Narnia that have kind of an apologetic underlying them are much more accessible to people, even if they're maybe like we touched on last week, not as theologically precise. That's not ac- actually what C.S. Lewis was trying to do anyways in that writing. Hmm. But it's accessible because story touches. Uh, we all communicate in story, right? When we, hang out with people, share with people. We're all sharing our lives through story. So I think that's more helpful in that way. Yeah. And I don't know, like y'all might think that I was going to disagree, but I completely agree. I think his, by far his greatest uh, impact was uh, his, his fiction. Like, yeah, I mean, he's obviously written a lot of, um, you know, logical arguments and and provided some evidence that way, which I think is very important. I think we need that. Um, just as kind of a grounding for, you know, other things that we do. But yeah, like Reese was saying, um, people, people don't, most people don't make decisions rationally. They make them emotionally and then they use, um, uh, logic to justify their emotional decisions. Um, and we do this, we, we see this all the time in marketing and sales. Like mm. when you go and buy something like, yeah you don't buy it because you've thought you've weighed all of the evidence and you're like, you know, on yeah. net, I think this is going to provide more value in my life than if I didn't have it. Yeah. And you say like, Oh, that I just want it. I want that thing so bad. Yeah. It's and the then, impulse rack at yeah, the shopping market. Exactly. And then once you buy it, when, you know, you when, when you take it, it home yeah. to your wife and you're like, Hey, I bought oh. this. She's like, why? You're like, well, I have all of these it's reasons why you. it's a gift for you. But to be honest, the reason you bought it was because there was some emotional reason, some emotional connection you had that it was going to make you feel good. Mm-hmm. And I think in a similar way, that's what apologetics, um, both, um, I don't, I don't want to be the first one to introduce this word, but imaginative and, Dude. uh, classical apologetics, they can go Don't hand in hand that pre-sub. way because um, nah, I can. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to this uh, in a second. But but the the imaginative side can connect with someone and uh, really spur a decision on their part. Yeah. While the classical or logical side can give them intellectual permission to take that plunge, right? Because a lot of times it's it's both of both areas can um, prevent someone from taking that leap of faith in Christ. What I've see kind of my job is doing is removing all intellectual barriers somebody might have in allowing um, the story of, of Christ, the stories that C.S. Lewis wrote to impact their lives. But, you know, maybe, maybe they hear those stories, but they're just like, ah, but it's just a bunch of fairy tales. Like I can't, I can't in good faith, you know, 
uh, accept them. Well, if I can provide those justifications, th- those reasons, and those those arguments um, to that person, then they have intellectual permission to uh, make that emotional decision. So, Scott, would you say in your apologetics, as you engage with somebody, are you more trying to convince them of Christianity, or are you trying to disprove their views that they hold currently? Probably uh, um, convince them of Christianity, or at least show them that there's no there's no good reason not to be a Christian, um, intellectually speaking. Um, because once I can get them there, um, it's just a, a matter of, I mean, it's a matter of uh, evangelism and the Holy Spirit, you know, taking them. I mean, it's really the Holy Spirit the whole way using those arguments and ev- evidence. But um, if I can get them to the point where it's like, yeah, I don't really have a good reason not to be a Christian, but I'm still not. I think, I mean, it still it sounds kind of like, oh, your, your job's not done. But at that point, it's like that person's ripe for, you know, somebody who, you know, knows them or has connected mm-hmm. emotionally with them mm-hmm. to, you know, give them the gospel because that's ultimately mm-hmm. what's going to, um, you know, take them across the, the finish line. Yeah. So, Gabe, let me ask you, if you are... If you're in the side of like an imaginative apologetics and you want to help uh-huh. through story and imagination and transcendence, what is your goal in that as you um, were to talk to somebody or write something or create something like that? What's the goal of kind of the imaginative side of apologetics? Yes. Um, well, fun fact, I thought I invented a term last week called imaginative apologetics. <laughs> This is true. I am witness to this. Yes. Nothing new. We were doing this podcast, and I was like, you know, he's got this like imaginative apologetic. I was like, oh, I wonder if that's a thing. And I Googled it, and it was. So, (laughs) yeah, book has already been written. Um, So, the goal, I think, of imaginative apologetics um, is to communicate the Christian worldview in a way that hits um, sort of those, uh, I guess, non reason organs right so like um lewis talked about this like the organ of truth being our reason and the organ of meaning being our imagination so finding meaning um and so i think that's kind of the main thing and it's actually really interesting so i there's a a rock journalist named steve turner who wrote a book called imagine a vision for christians in the arts and he he said this and i i um i came across this quote um once again as i was preparing for this episode and I'll just read it real quick. It says, um, it's, it's about art and it's about imagination in the arts. And it's got, um, feel free to agree or disagree with this. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Oh, I will. I know. You're, I don't even need to tell you to do that. Just so you guys know, this whole podcast is about pitting Scott and Gabe against each other. <laughs> we, the funny thing is, we get along so well. It's just. Do we, though? I mean. <laughs> okay. Unity Tur- while you disagree. Turner- Friendship is crumbling in front of us. <laughs> Turner says this. He says, the best art does not tell people what to believe, but enables them for a short while to see things differently. And the Christian can enable people to momentarily glimpse the world through eyes that have been touched by Christ. And I would say that's like, even though um, he doesn't use the word imaginative apologetics, um, I think that's like the role of imagination in apologetics is to help people see the world um, through a new light. And not necessarily like to defend a truth or to present a belief, but to present um, almost like an entirely new world view in like the broad sense, the artistic sense of that thing. You know, like when you go to the movies and like your imagination is captured. And so, yeah, that's what that's what I would view mm-hmm. imaginative apologetics as. Right. 
Yeah, no, and like I think that's an incredibly valuable uh, tool to have in your tool belt, and that's the big thing I want to emphasize about apologetics is like there's all these different kinds of apologetics, but like they're all just tools in the tool belt to get people to Christ, right? Like you use whatever you know whatever God wants you to use to, to lead someone to Christ, whatever they need to hear at that point. Um, they're all equally as good. Right, Scott, whatever works. (laughs) I'm seriously like just completely practical about this. Like whatever's going to work. Like I think God can use, see, I just don't limit God, you know, um, God can use, (laughs) (laughs) God can use anything to, uh, um, lead someone to, well, probably not anything, but like, um, you know, it doesn't, God's ability to save someone does not rest on us using the proper apologetic method. Mm, that's a tiny mm. word. Yeah. So, like, I think I've had more success with the way I do apologetics because um, I used to. Um, I don't know if we are going to talk about presup now, but I used to do presup, and I which is what? Oh, can you describe it quickly? Well, apparently, I've understood it incorrectly because the way I've been taught it <laughs> was not at all what what some. Uh, what apparently Gabe has read, but um, what I understand is Precept seeks to, rather than um, provide arguments and evidence for the Christian faith, um, try and get the other person to see that their presuppositions um, are about like reasoning and the Bible are like like they aren't valid on their own worldview, but only on like the Christian worldview, um, and. So it is the presupposition that the Christian worldview is the only even logical or reasonable right. one. And so the goal is to show other people, basically to deconstruct right. their worldview right. and show them the inconsistency. So really, presuppositionalists are deconstructionists? I don't think so. Oh. Scott, do you have like a... <laughs> Andrew's words, not mine. Yeah, Andrew's right. words, not I mine. Think, <laughs> <laughs> Scott, do you have like a succinct example like from that perspective? Um, yeah, so... Give us your worst. <laughs> so, okay, and I and again, when I... Some ex- examples I will give, I don't want to give the impression that this is what every single person that does so precept you know, does. Yeah. Like, I, I'm sure there are plenty of preceptors that will, you know, do be very great people and you know i'm probably looking at a couple right now but um (laughs) but uh it just my experience is i've seen people um basically when they're arguing with um someone who's not a christian the the person who's not a christian says you know i'm not a christian because there's this there's this there's this um like there's so much evil in the world you know the the conventional you know, atheist arguments that I think deserve a good answer. But what I'll often see the presuppositional apologists say is, well, you actually can't even make that logical argument without first assuming that God exists. So if you don't assume that God, so you have to, you're already assuming that God exists um, to make that argument. And the person they're, they're talking to will say, well, I don't think that's true. I, I think my view is like, I can, I can make a logical argument without God and then the pre-supper will be like, well, no, you can't because, you know, you have to assume that God exists in order to make a logical argument. And it just kind of goes back and forth that way. And my, what I always would run into is that the other person would never see my side of it. And so it's kind of just a whole non-starter for any type of conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and besides that, I think what presuppositional apologetics does is it, it does rest on a faulty assumption that 
we our presuppositions are uh, are justified um, without logic at all, um, and the other uh, the the other person's presuppositions um, aren't justified or uh, with logic. So, like the presuppositional apologist would say, my my truth, my source of revelation and truth is the word of God, right? Well, okay, but why? Why is that your source of truth? Why is that this? Why is revelation a valid source of truth? Well, in order to make that, in order to have a, in order to make that argument, you have to, or you have to have some sort of argument as to why the Bible is the ultimate source of truth to you, and that's logic. Like logic is really the the base um, uh, way of argumentation for for not only. Um, uh, the traditional apologist, but also the precepter. The precepter has to have some sort of logical justification as to why um, uh, the Bible or God is their, you know, base presupposition. Um, so I don't think I don't think they get away from their own presuppositions either. And so I think that's where it leads to these circular types of conversations. So I mean, that's just that's that's just what I've seen. But again, I always make the caveat if if it works for you and you're you know, leading people to Christ with it, God bless, like, keep doing it. But what is the quality of the Christian then? I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, uh, and like, yeah, so when I say lead to Christ, I mean lead to a fulfilling relationship with, with like, in, in the born-again Christian type of sense of the word. Like, that's the type of, just not just, I, I, the goal of apologetics is not just to get people to intellectually affirm the, the truths of Christianity, but to you be in a saving relationship with Christ. Um, and, and whatever you want to do to get somebody there, I mean, provided it's moral, um, I, I think that's fine. That's a good question. Well, I do think, let me maybe wrap up some of this thought on Lewis specifically to that point, Scott. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things that we can forget sometimes in Lewis, because he is polarizing at points, and people do question some of his theology, like we talked about last time. They question some of his approaches, uh, whether he's uh, too intellectual and heady, whether he just cares about stories. There, there's a lot of opinions, but I don't want to miss the fact uh, that Lewis himself even uh, was... He was a great evangelist, and that was the goal here. Mm-hmm. Of He wanted mm-hmm. people to understand uh, Christ. And so, again, from Christianity and literature... Uh, he he says this. He said, "The salvation of a single soul is more important than the production or preservation of all the epics and tragedies in the world." So Lewis, who's who's a philosopher, he's making all these arguments. He's a storyteller. Says really, what we're trying to get at here is the salvation of souls. Mm-hmm. And so uh, for all of us that we can disagree on the 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 helpfulness of arguments, the way to approach these things, Scott, I appreciate that you said what I think Lewis would affirm is that at the end of the day, we're trying to do the same thing. We're trying to help people um, uh, find salvation in Christ alone. And so um, there are a lot of different routes to take, and and Lewis took very many different ones in in different writings. Um, And I think, like you said, we can too. Um, But that is the goal, is that we want people Mm. uh, not just to cross an intellectual line, not just to to cross a line to getting to a church. We want people to actually experience Christ and the union with Christ that we have with Him. And and that is the goal of all of this, why we write stories, why we tell big stories, why we uh, dream and imagine things of God, why we tell uh, logical arguments is so that people would come to actually know and be unified with Christ. Right.
And I don't want to like, we uh, I always want to caution, like we don't want to belittle the Holy Spirit's role in all of this. Like right. he, it's, it's not as though like you're arguing somebody to Christ. Like that doesn't, that's uh, that sort of terminology doesn't really make sense because nobody comes to Christ except through the Holy Spirit. But what I think um, we can say is that the Holy Spirit uses arguments and evidence in certain cases to lead people to Christ. Um, And, you know, I think there are certain people that that works better for. Um, Certain types of uh, um, people that you, you talk to need logical arguments and evidence certain type of people need stories um to uh really connect with and it it really just depends on that situation that's all about that's all part of becoming a better evangelist but in the end it's Mm. about what the holy spirit does so scott let me ask you this and maybe i feel like we've been going for a while maybe we can end this way so if i'm somebody who's wanting to participate with the spirit in Mm -hmm. this way i want to become proficient to a greater extent with apologetics what would you offer as some like places to start um, in terms of either books to read, people to read, yeah. you to talk to, maybe sure. have a dinner with you. Yeah, or for sure. Come up to me at church and we'll... Uh, ask him we'll, to dinner. Yeah, ask me to dinner, for He'll sure. <laughs> Scott would gladly take you. <laughs> we'll out. work for food. Um, <laughs> no, there's a really good podcast that uh, I recommend. <laughs> um, Is that the presuppositional one? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I don't know any of those. Um <laughs> No, uh, yeah, uh, but seriously, like, listen to the Free Thinking Podcast. I, that, that is a, um, a shameless plug, but I believe in the work that um, we do. Uh, my uh, co-host, Tim Stratton, is a genius. Um, he writes at freethinkingministries.com. They have a bunch of beginner-level material about a bunch of different things. He does a great job of tying in apologetics to a lot of pop culture, so he writes about superhero movies, um, Star Wars, all of that stuff, so that's really fun. Um, and so if you want a way to like connect that, he like sees different, um, Christian applications within those, um, those movies. And so that makes it very accessible. Uh, reasonablefaith.org, William Lane Craig's, um, organization, um, that's got really good stuff. Read the book On Guard by William Lane Craig. I have a copy if anybody wants to borrow it. Um, I'd be happy to. He's offering dinner and books. This is really impressive. Exactly. Um, but yeah, like those are some some resources I really like. There's another ministry that I've been reading a lot of and they do that. A lot of their stuff is a little bit, uh, maybe more intermediate. Um, capturing Christianity, um, is a really good uh, website to go to. Um, so, uh, yeah, like those are, those are just a few of the, the really good ones. And once you're on those sites, um, you'll see links to a bunch of different contributors that when you kind of figure out from there, like who, who kind of writes, in a way that, that you um, are receptive to. But those are some good resources, I think, to start with. I love it. But buy me dinner first, you know. Oh, buy me dinner first. <laughs> well, I'm going to buy you something. Um, <laughs> well, oh, so many questions, so much to talk about. I mean, there's probably a bunch of uh, fields of apologetics that I didn't even know existed that you guys are probably inventing right now. Gabe, there's yeah. maybe still hope for you to come up with <laughs> one. He's going to make up a word now. Yeah. Culinary apologetics. That'll be the next one. Um, but in, in reality, if you guys have any questions, comments, or uh, thoughts that you want to share with us, please email us at formation at providenceomaha.org. Um, I'll put Scott's email in the show notes if you want to contact oh. him. Oh. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, would... Um, yeah, my prayer for our church is that we would be a church um, 
that not only has a reason to give for the hope that's in you, but I love the first part of that verse that says, um, to those who would ask you for the reason that's in you. And so Providence, would we live in such a way that people would be inclined to ask us for the reason of the hope that is in us, um, this month, this year, this decade, as we pursue the presence of God and, um, yeah, with all of who we are, with our reason and our imagination and our presupposition. Would all of those be brought under the authority of Jesus Christ uh, in Omaha and around the world? We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening.